You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today, as always, is Nathan Gilmore, who's a full professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, how's life as a full professor? They've always said I was full of it. Now I've got the title. (laughs) Also joining us is David Grubbs, who's a lowly assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University, Houston, Texas. Do you strive to be like Nathan? One day. Is he the end at which your actions aim? One day I will experience the fullness of professorship, but not not today. Uh, And we have a special guest for this episode, Danny Anderson of the Sectarian Review Podcast, who is, I think, still an assistant professor of English at uh, Mount Aloysius College in Crescent Hill? Crescent. Crescent, Pennsylvania. Crescent. There you go. Yes, and I'm not aiming anything at Nathan's end. Just, just, to, just to be clear. <laughs> oh my. Well, Danny, <laughs> Danny, Danny is joining us today because we're going to talk about a record I know he likes, the '77's self-titled album. But first, what's new on the network? We've got a Christian feminist uh, podcast episode coming out about Emily Dickinson. Uh, we've also got Book of Nature. Uh, going to be talking to us about parapsychology. Woohoo! And Danny, since you're here, uh, talk a little bit about uh, tomorrow's. Well, actually, in our time, it's tomorrow. Listener, in your time, it's several days ago. Episode of the Sectarian Review. Yeah, I had the great pleasure of uh, having Nathan and Coyle Neal from the City of Man podcast to talk about the amazing YouTube series Cobra Kai, which Nathan sort of guilted me into watching uh, with the promise that it was really good and it was kind of amazing. And uh, and so I was very happy to do that. And we had a great discussion. So I'm really excited to, for that one to come out and excited for the second season of the show to come out. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I am not sure I'm ever going to watch that show. I, you know, I've never seen The Karate Kid. Oh, see, now, now you've uh, baited me, Michael. I might have to do a, uh, a movie episode in the fall semester. I think I'm going to be on hiatus in the fall. (laughs) (laughs) His avoidance tactics, yes. Well, at any rate, Michael, this episode is also sponsored by Zondervan's new NRSV Comfort Print Bible. Uh, David, you uh, explained it nicely what a Comfort Print Bible is last time. Won't you take another swing at it this week? Sure. Basically, Bibles are either... Big and easy to read, or small and easy to carry around, but usually you want it to be both. Uh, What the Zondervan Comfort Print Bibles do is 
they, they've designed a font that's easier to read in smaller size, uh, more, more, uh, more comfortable on the eyes, and, uh, that, and so they're able to kind of hit a sweeter spot in that negotiation between size and readability than has hitherto been possible. Um, in particular, uh, what, uh, what is uh, sponsoring this show is their, their NRSV translation of that. Uh, which, uh, if if you go look at uh, look at their site, um, there are many different uh, uh, many different big names who are uh, who are promoting that particular translation as as the as the preference. That's the one I use, and uh, they have they have Catholic versions and Protestant versions and Protestant versions with the apocrypha. If you uh, if you can't make up your mind, so you can see all of those, the full lineup, at nrsv.net. Well, as I said, we are talking today about the 77's 1987 self-titled album, the 77s. Uh, as if that weren't confusing enough, <laughs> they have another album that's sometimes referred to as self-titled, but is really called "Pray Naked." The record label wouldn't let them call it that, so it's just called the 77s. We're talking about the one from 1987. Uh, not the one with the naked South Asian man on the cover. I, for some reason, they wouldn't let him call it Pray Naked, but having the naked South Asian man on the front cover, no problem. Uh, the, the oddities of Christian rock labels. Danny, you and I are the only members of this panel who had listened to the 77s before a few weeks ago, so I think it's up to you and me to say why this band and their frontman Mike Rowe are interesting and important to Christian rock. Who are these people anyway? Well, they're uh, a band that kind of comes out of Sacramento and they were formed in the context of sort of a, a church uh, that was sort of, I think the way I understand it, uh, the church was, uh, what was the name of the church? I forget the name. The Warehouse. Uh, the Warehouse. Thank you. Uh, the church was kind of founded to kind of be an outreach for edgier Christianity in, in, in some ways. And they had this develop this culture, if you will, of, of music, of Christian rock that is not necessarily didactic uh, kind of music, right? So it doesn't fit with the mainstream Christian rock typified by like Petra and, and bands like that of the time. And so there's a, you have this almost like alternative Christian rock scene, to, to put it in uh, simplistic terms. And, and so that's kind of where they come from. But it's Michael Rowe is the uh, and he's not the guy who's making cell phone videos trying to tell everybody to drop out of college and be electricians. Uh, that's a different Mike Rowe. Uh, Michael Rowe is the uh, the kind of head of this uh, band, and and he's sort of been a part of all the incarnations of it through all the the cast changes throughout the year. So he's who I'm going to most basically focus on. Although um, I'll let Michael fill in the gaps there with the bass player, and, and who are also very important figures. Um, but Honestly, for me, it's really hard to talk about this band without getting really kind of personal uh, on some level because I really strongly have always enjoyed their music. And then as I've, in researching the show, done some like poking around Michael Rose biography, I really relate to him in a way that it was shocking to me and very kind of almost emotional. Like uh, he is someone who doesn't, fit neatly in any kind of world. And yet he has limbs in many kinds of worlds. Right. And so this is a, 
an experience of Christianity that was always mine. And, and so the music of this band, I think, reflects this. And we'll get into some of the more, more of the details of that on down the road here in this episode. But the, the approach of having a Christian make rock music in this very undefinable way um, and living both as a Christian and as a rock musician uh, put him in a position where he is everywhere but belonging nowhere, kind of. And this has always been, frankly, the experience of my life as I've always felt like a misfit everywhere I was, right? And so um, this music has always meant something to me. Um, and now I kind of get a sense that it must come out of a, a shared psychology with Michael Rowe. So it's really difficult for me to uh, to talk about this without going really personal. I, I was first introduced to them by uh, my friend Rob, who happens in circumstance to be my uh, my pastor now, uh, when we were first at college together in the late 80s. And I had never heard, I had no idea that there was a kind of Christian rock that was not what all my youth group friends were listening to. I had no idea there was this underground scene uh, of Christian rock. And so he introduced me to much of it. And the 77s was the band that really stood out to me and particularly this album. And so, um, yeah, this was uh, at a formational time in my own kind of development. And so for me, what's interesting and important to Christians about this form of Christian rock is that it is a, a, a an option for people who are kind of left out of the mainstream, both the, the secular mainstream and the whatever liturgical mainstream um, and feel like you have no home anywhere. The 77s might just be for you. <laughs> so, um, and I'm sure that there's lots of uh, detail we can, uh, we can gloss or you can uh, fill in there, Michael. Yeah. I wanted to read something about Roe from a guy named J Edward keys who actually suggested we do this album. Um, so this is, you know, this is his fault, I suppose. Uh, he, he runs a blog that I don't think he posts that much anymore called uh, an atheist guide to Christian rock. Uh, and he, he, he wrote about a related album, not, the 77 self-titled, but an album called Sticks and Stones, which is kind of a rarity compilation that has about half the songs on the self-titled album in another form. Anyway, this is what he says. Singer and guitarist Mike Rowe at the time was arguably one of the greatest rock frontmen working, a twitching live wire of charisma and gusto and swagger. Where so much of the bad end of Christian rock feels like it was par-baked in a germ-free environment, Rowe had absorbed decades' worth of actual rock history, mostly from the 50s and 60s, and understood instinctively that fronting a rock band was not the same thing as leading eyes-closed acoustic worship at the weekly teen service. The cover of Sticks and Stones was a loving recreation of the cover of an early Little Richard album, and several of the songs it contained had the visible uh, fingerprints of Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, and of course Elvis Presley. Almost as important, Roe looked like a rock frontman. A wild shock of Robert Smith hair perched atop his pale, bony face. Roe at the time was enigmatic without even trying to be. There was something renegade about his whole demeanor, the sense that he was some sort of Jim Jarmusch rock singer character. A ghost without a past who appeared out of nowhere and could just as easily return to the same. He also possessed one of rock's crucial elements, a streak of defiance. Where most mainstream Christian bands aggressively marketed themselves to parents as a safe musical choice for their children, Roe never seemed interested in being anyone's substitute for the cramps. Uh, 
That attitude would eventually get him into unending amounts of Christian music trouble, entangling him in the kind of squabbles fans of mainstream music would find laughable. He tried to title an album Pray Naked, and his record company freaked out and refused. He included the lyric, This whole world has kicked my ass on a record. The label forced him to have the tape garble when he sang it. By the way, they just reissued that album uh, last year, and they ungarbled the tape, I'm glad to say. Three songs were forcibly dropped from his first solo record because they contained the mere implication of profanity. To put it simply, Rose seemed legit, an actual rock star in a subculture full of stand-ins. And that is absolutely my experience with Mike Rowe. Uh, you know, I didn't listen to a whole lot of secular music growing up, and, and this was the closest thing I got to a real rock star. Uh, and, I mean, he's he's just effortlessly cool here and everywhere else. And his his range as a singer is really remarkable. I think you get a little bit of that here. So he has this kind of growling thing he can do, uh, and he does it a little bit on the verses of what was in that letter on this album. But then he also, he sings like Brian Wilson and can hit these amazing high notes. The man was born to be a rock star. And uh, and it's it's a real shame that he's not better known. But I, I think the reason he's not is exactly what Danny says. He doesn't really fit in to either of the, the groups that would otherwise have embraced him. Yeah, if I can follow that up real quickly, Michael, um, I found an article from like 15 years ago in some local uh, Sacramento paper uh, by a guy named Christian Kiefer, and he's opens it up with this description of Mike, Michael Rowe doing a, a solo house show, basically, uh, and he talks about all these kinds of uh, hipster Christians, <laughs> these cool-looking, handsome, young Christians um, watching the show. They stare, apparently mystified, in the same direction, a singular vision that ultimately seems the source of a steady mixture of concern, confusion, and adoration. One might expect the focus of that gaze to be on a religious lecturer or an Amway salesman, but tonight the focus of that stare is a singer-songwriter. If the collected Abercrombies look the part of stereotypical Christians, then the musician on the other side of the room is their essential opposite. And uh, then it goes on to talk about how the the applause is hesitant because they don't know what to do with him, right? And so you, you come away understanding and Michael Rowe, he's like a very uh, a special person. And honestly, someone who I kind of feel almost is like a, a a template for my own kind of experience at the edges of Christian culture. And so I think there's a reason that I've always really enjoyed this music and um, looking into his bio, I think I, I have uh, some insight into why there. Yeah. And he's very different than the other people we've done this series on. Um, so, you know, guys like Mark Hurd and Terry Taylor and Bill Maloney, those are all kind of poet troubadour types. Uh, and, and Mike Knott from Lifesavers Underground is kind of a wild man Roe is just a rock star like he belongs in another age in a weird way but he belongs in like 15 other ages at once the one time he does not belong is the time he's actually living in so it's uh there's nobody like him i hear a lot of ray davies in him and his he has this kind of flat voice that i think um uh i actually feel like there's a, a bit of the kinks in this as well and so you know well, I, uh, Nathan and David, I, I assume you hadn't heard of this album until I made you listen to it. Nope. Nope. Then uh, I won't 
I won't insult you by asking you to add to that conversation. Instead, Nathan, our listeners who have heard these other Christian Rock series uh, episodes have become accustomed to hearing you talk about what these albums sound like. So let's keep up the tradition. Tell me what this album sounds like. This is an album that is in conversation with a lot of of other albums of its period. It's not, uh, as Michael said, derivative of them uh, in the way that, you know, sort of the stereotype of Christian rock is. Uh, But, you know, the the opening bars of Do It For Love, I mean, sounds like it could be the lost track from Born To Run. Uh, Absolutely. You know, when you get to, you know, the end of the album, uh, Frames Without Photographs, I mean, again, it's not trying to be R.E.M., but it's definitely in conversation with it. Uh, in between there, you know, I mean, you got, uh, as you guys were discussing, you know, some vocal stylings, uh, that are sometimes reminiscent of Billy Idol, uh, sometimes of the doors, uh, you know, it is an album with a lot of range, you know, it doesn't have a single sound that persists across its tracks, uh, but it is interacting with all kinds of sounds there from the mid eighties and before, um, you know, as far as the instrumentals go michael i mean you know i was paying so much attention to the vocals that honestly i I really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the guitar work uh i know that you had said that on other albums his guitar you know virtuosity is a lot more on display do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah i mean roe i think has has a, a good claim of being one of the two or three best guitarists to ever play in christian rock music and i know that sounds like damning with faint praise, but it's really not. I mean, he, he's a remarkable guitarist with an awful lot of range there, too. You don't get a lot of that here. So I, I think the two places you kind of get it are Pearls Before Swine, which is like a, what would you call it? Like a slowed down surf song with a lot of reverby guitar noise. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it reminded me of, uh, now I can't think of that. I should have written down the name of the track by The Doors that it reminded me of. Yeah, I can't say I know because I hate the doors. Yeah, and I know I, I listeners, I should have written it down. This is my fault. But what was in that letter? Also, I think you hear a lot of range in the guitar. In that you you have this kind of Morse code rhythm track that's playing through part of it, and then he has these more um, liquid, fluid lines elsewhere. He's a really good guitar player, and it's really hard to describe what guitar playing sounds like uh, off the cuff like this. But um, I, I I would say that. The 77s albums from the 1990s uh, feature a little bit more of the guitar work or really probably the best place to turn if you liked this album is the live album that came out a few years later called 88, which is uh, recorded in 1988. But I mean, you get some really long extended instrumental sections where you can really hear him do his thing. uh, David, uh, Danny, anything to add about what this album sounds like? I'll defer to David first. <sighs> That's a mistake. Um, <laughs> I, I kept hearing, I, I, I would listen and I'd be like, that sounds like a fragment of The Cure. Or that sounds like a fragment of Depeche Mode. Or I think I hear a little bit of you too. But yes, and and I think I think that's the way to think about it. Like 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 Nathan says, they're not trying to sound like somebody else, but it's like he's absorbed everything that everybody's ever recorded and, and can kind of throw pieces up against the wall and, and see what comes out new. Yeah. And Michael, yeah. I, I figured it out. It's uh, roadhouse blues is the doors track that, uh, pearls before swine reminded me of the, the kind of growling vocals you were talking about are very reminiscent of that. But I cut you off, David. 
No, not really. I mean, I, I don't. I, I'm. We, we've established in all of these Christian rock uh, episodes that uh, I I do not possess the facility to describe <laughs> what is going on musically. Um, that's why I always throw that question to Nathan. Yeah, so, I appreciate so, that. So that Christian rock bloggers can sharpen their knives. <laughs> you did not compare them to the traveling Wilburys, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no Tom Petty on this album. Danny? Uh, well, I mean, I think you could definitely hear that there's uh, Nathan taking it back to the doors. That I remember on the 88 album particularly, there's a lot of songs that sound Dorsey on there. <laughs> I think I think you could use that to uh, uh, describe a lot of that album. But I think he's definitely they they are definitely rooted in kind of the classic rock tradition of the '60s, right? And I think that's that's underneath all of the stuff that then is responding to new wave records of the late '70s and early '80s. Yes. And so I I think you've got. A lot of this kind of sounds like it would be on the Fletch soundtrack or something, right? And so you have a lot of this uh, uh, very 80s, I mean, it's of the time of the 80s with the instruments that are chosen and the way they're played and, and everything. And so I think that there's definitely a way in which the David's reference to The Cure and Depeche Mode uh, is not accidental. I think he's definitely coming from this richer tradition of guitar rock i guess for nothing for lack of a better word um and bringing it into this um this early 80s kind of new wave scene that uh is a little more uh i don't know i don't know how to say it, a little geekier i don't know how to say it but uh there, there's a way in which there's elvis costello in this and and, and all kinds of folks from that era tautness well. i think is the word i often associate yeah. with new wave i hear that on yeah. don't say goodbye which sounds Kind of like Elvis Costello covering the police or something. Or maybe yeah, the police covering a... Elvis Costello. <laughs> yeah. It, have you heard the albums before this, Danny? All Fall Down and Ping Pong Over the I Abyss? Because those are just straightforward new wave records. Yeah, definitely. And his look, even, um, at that time. If you look at the video for Mercy, for example. Um, that, that, <laughs> Which you that, either should like, or shouldn't. I'm not sure what Ro would think I about that. I love that video. <laughs> I always say that actually reminds me of teaching. He's up there like flailing away and everybody's just staring at him like create, like he's an insane person. Um, but that's a very kind of, oh, I guess almost like a punky rockabilly sound. I think I got that term actually from the article I read. Uh, Mercy is a very, it's something almost like the Stray Cats would have done. Yeah. Right? And so, but um, more on him. Down, 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 down
definitely. And, and manic. There's like a manicness to New Age. And well. there is a 20 yeah. minute version of that on 88, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and it's well worth listening to. I love 88. That was actually the first 77s album I bought myself. You could you could do a lot worse than that. I'm just checking to make sure it is indeed. Uh, 20 minutes, so I don't make a total fool of myself. <laughs> it's actually it's actually only 12 minutes. I'm sorry to. Uh, but it felt I'm like sorry 20. To disappoint everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. I don't. No, I feel bad. Well, uh, the 77s are a quote-unquote Christian band, um, but their self-titled record came out on Island Records, which was a major secular label of the era. You know, I have no idea if Island is still a thing. Uh, But anyway, the band was in this weird position of having to maintain their appeal to their longtime Christian fans, but also to achieve a wider audience without turning them off without with too much religious material. David, how do you think they thread that needle? Hmm. One of the one of the re- ways is 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 what we've already uh, sort of what we've already talked about. Um, their sound is, uh, I I would say that their sound is right on the on the edge of so many other kinds of familiar things. All right, so there would be uh, there there's a lot here musically that. Um, a wider audience could sort of latch onto and say, "Ah, that's that's the fl- that's my flavor." Um, so the, the, there's there's a lot of, of purchase here for a pretty wide swath of of you know rock listeners at that time. Um, also, though, even though I see I see Christian things going on in the lyrics. Um, they're always subtle things, and it's not even in every song. Um, and sometimes it's even um, it's even that kind of conspiratorial, um, you know, Christian kids listening to secular rock, and there being a couple God references, and you going, "Oh, conspiracy theory! This band is actually Christian." Um, you know, so, so there. Sometimes I feel like that when I'm reading the lyrics. Like, am am I back in youth group? Really, really, really wanting this demand to be a Christian band. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, just just for some some instances that are, um, I think m- much more much more clearly, uh, much more clearly Christian. Um, I can't get over it. Um, you uh, it first it starts off by sounding very excessively like. A, a kind of a breakup song sort of sort of thing you know I can't I can't shake this um, I can't get over it uh, I should be giving you a break but I can't um, we put it behind us now but I can't get over it right so it seems like that kind of song but then you need somebody who can get over it you need somebody who can get over it um, we need somebody who can get over it. We need somebody who can get over it. We need somebody who can take the pain of it. We need somebody who has bought and paid for you and it and it. And then all of a sudden this, you know, sort of mid eighties song about, you know, the feeling, the bitterness, the grudge you can't shake has lateraled into Isaiah 53 without warning. (laughs) 
Um, and in a way where if you didn't know that's what it was doing, you probably wouldn't even notice because he kind of garbles exactly. the lyrics. Exactly. Um, you know, had I not had the lyrics in front of me, I wouldn't even have necessarily perceived that he was doing he was doing that kind of different thing. Um, and I don't know. Maybe maybe this is maybe this is part of his his lyrical style. Um, repeating refrains um, happens in a lot of these songs, and often he will vary that refrain. Um, and I didn't always notice that he was varying it when I was listening to the song, but I would go back and listen again with the lyrics and realize, oh, he's, he's, he's mixed up the phrase, he's changed some words, um, the lyrics are doing something different now, and it just completely gone under, um, gone under my awareness. So, you know, in terms of explicit Christianity, there's not, um, there's not really any here, uh, but there are songs that if you are Christian, um, that that extra layer that that other level is there available to you um so and may, maybe these are these are songs that um a wider audience could have been invited to re-listen after they learn more about uh the associations and background of the band and the lyricist um but and I, I I think they're threading the needle pretty well. I I don't see anything here that would have necessarily, you know, raised people raised eyebrows. There's I I don't see anything here that's kind of sacrilegly Christian in that in a mid '80s way. No, there's I I wouldn't say anything is sacrilegious. I mean, Pearls Before Swine is pretty. It, it uses all these biblical figures. I guess it uses Esau and Tamar. Mm-hmm. And, and then I, we're going to talk about the lust, the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life in a little while. The yeah. separate question. But yeah. I would say that one's pretty blatant. But you know, I also thought as I was listening to that one, and uh, is you know, a question of lust, Depeche Mode, right? Um, there's a, a lot of this language was being used in in sort of the the, the bands that you hear that that I hear echoing around it. Um, you know, in the name of love, you know, do it for love. You know, a, a lot of that language um, I've, I've, I hear echoing um, around in this. I, I did find it interesting that the opening track of the album has the very liturgical line, lift up your heart to heaven. Yeah. I mean, that... that but but it, it barely feels religious, don't you think? Uh, I mean, I, I guess because I knew that we were listening to a, you know, borderline Christian band. I was listening for that kind of thing, so I heard it. Yeah, fair enough. Do you anything anything to add there? I mean the the band's name comes from the book of Daniel. Um the the idea of seventy sevens uh is uh from Daniel nine. And so I think that, that a you know, a a church kid might get that reference and so that's sort of like something that would be a uh a, uh, a connector to Christian culture, but then spinning it forward, you're right. I think that there's a way in which you can listen to most of these songs um, without any idea that it was a Christian band. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the Christian references are almost like dog whistles for people who know. Yeah. Um, and so with a couple of exceptions, um, I think that the, the one, the, the, the song that honestly that's aged the worst for me is Pearls Before Swine. It, it feels very much a part of 
Christian purity culture. <laughs> and I feel yeah. like uh, uh, um, the Christian feminist podcast has talked about that uh, in, in previous episodes. And, and I think that that's the one song that is like most clearly rooted in a, a church culture. Um, and the rest of it, even the lust, of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life is um, a very beautiful, I mean, I could hear Bob Dylan singing the song, right? I, it's a very kind of just beautiful folk song. Well, you know song who plays on that, it? Yes, I want to. Yeah, uh, yeah, Chris Holman. Yeah, from right? the birds. Um, yeah, and so I, I definitely want to. We definitely got to talk about that. But, but yeah, I think that you do. They they do find this um, really wonderful balance that I think reflects the the multi multiple facets of their of Rose personality, right? And and you can almost see the fact that it's so hard to pin put a pin in any aspect of this without it squishing over outside the boundaries of that, of that, um, area, I, I think because of the way in which he is kind of undefinable and therefore it's got this kind of wanderingness to it that, uh, I think makes it fit both worlds really well. I want to talk about pearls before swine for just a second. Um, on the 77s Facebook group, just a couple of weeks ago, Roe, uh, talked about it. He said he wrote it after, some female friend of his had uh, slept with some guy who was unworthy of her. But I find that song really, really uncomfortable because of the usage of Tamar, who is raped yes. in, the, in the biblical story. And yes. it's, the, the song seems to blame her for it. Um, yes. and it, it. I mean, it's not the same thing because it's not really about Tamar, but uh, that in the Me Too era is a little difficult to listen to, which is too bad because yeah. the guitar work is really great on that song. and Tamar. Yes. I, I was reading it as Judah and Tamar. Oh. No, no, I think I think it is Judah and Tamar. Judah and Tamar? Right, because sure? Tamar is raped, right? No, that's Amnon and Tamar. No, no, no. Okay, well, yeah, that's Amnon the one I was thinking. No, in Judah and Tamar, it's a, it's a seduction. Yeah, oh. that's what I read it as. So, no, 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 no. I well, mean, then if, never if you mind. read it as Amnon and Tamar, mm. then your point is absolutely valid. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry if, if Mike Rowe is hearing this. I, I apologize for my bad biblical exegesis. Well, I mean, come on. Which Tamar? She never na- he never names the dude. 
<laughs> well, and I, and I guess because she seems to be an agent in this narrative, I assumed it was the Judah one. I, I did not realize there were two Tamars. Yeah, both with sex stories. Well, uh, the song is much less uh, uncomfortable now. Well, no, I, I, is it, no, I, th- is it I think really? David's reading is better, though. Yeah. I, neither of them really fit... Uh, neither neither story really lays nicely on top of this... On top of these lyrics, though. I would say. I mean, which is typical of evangelical culture that picks and chooses metaphors in messy ways, right? And so I think that that's why it felt very much like youth group uh, morality um, listening to it again after all this time. I like the song as a song. I, I don't I don't love, I don't think it's aged well. But, but let's, uh, let's stop and pay attention to the fact that a Christian album in 1997 features the lyric, she's putting out, swapping everything for what he's putting in. Yes. Good so, Lord. I mean, it's purity culture, but that that's really transgressive for the milieu that this, this band is coming out of. And Wait, keep... Again, that goes to the character. Yeah. Go ahead, David. I just I'm said sorry. it was icky. Uh, it wasn't deep. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it once, like Michael said, um, uh, Michael Farmer, um, it's... He, uh, it's it's of that, but also transgresses it, just like Mike Rowe himself, yeah. right? And I think that's what makes him so interesting. Um, it's it's uh, that part of that transgression is that is that he he actually um, names what he's speaking. He doesn't use um, a lot of the kind of received euphemisms. Yeah, to, that's right. To sort that's of right. dance around it. Um, and that 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 directness, uh, I find um, re- refreshing in the face of the 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 evasiveness of of the purity language that Danny was talking about. Well, the great tragedy of this band is that this album came out a week or two after Island's biggest hit in years, probably their biggest hit ever, U2's Joshua Tree. And the story goes that a large number of staff members for the label actually went out on tour with the band and didn't leave very many people to promote the 77s. Uh, J. Edward Keyes says he doubts that story a little bit, and he, he recalls asking Roe about it, and Roe said the band wasn't exactly willing to go on tour as much as they would have to because they, they all had young families and things like that. But still, uh, it is certainly true that the bulk of island's energy went to u2 and the 77s didn't get a whole lot of attention from the label and the irony of that to me is that the joshua tree and this album share a lot of dna in terms of sound and approach and even like religious uh background danny do you agree with me on that how how do you think the 77s as an album stacks up to the joshua tree yeah i think they really if i were teaching a music a class i would totally pair these two albums up uh, as a way to kind of uh, bounce, bounce them off of each other, because I do think that they, they do work as a really interesting pair. Um, And so one thing that is, you know, again, interesting, just like the 77s don't really neatly fit in youth group, you know, Christian culture. Like, I think the same experiences outside, uh, like in album, in Island records itself, uh, they don't exactly know how to market it. Right. Uh, it's, it doesn't, it, it's more overtly 
Christian than the Joshua tree. Um, and so I think that makes it a little bit harder for them to find a market for it. And they apparently just didn't have the imagination to create a market for it or to realize there was a market of people like me, for example, uh, who <laughs> would have loved this album. And so um, I, I do think that that's an interesting kind of um, tension. But in terms of like uh, the DNA, yes, I think that both of them, I mean, U2 is like three quarters Christian, right, at the time. And uh, and so didn't... Uh, didn't Larry Mullen finally convert? Adam Clayton uh, was the one who, who the oh, holdout. Adam Clayton, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, didn't he finally convert? I'm I sorry. think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but at the time they were three quarters Christian and you, and like this album, you can hear a lot of allusions to scripture and you can hear a lot of like ethical reasoning that's going on in that album. So they definitely share that religious, uh, that religious perspective being brought into the broader world. Right. And so I think where they diverge a little bit is the fact that the Joshua tree, it's so, it's hard for me to talk about because is there a more seminal 1980s album than the Joshua? It's not fair. Right. right? I mean, the Joshua tree has one of the greatest side A's in music history. It's flawless. Right. But it's also, it's, it's part of the soundtrack of the eighties. Yeah. Right? And so it is like, it's one of those, uh, you can't think about the eighties without those songs. And so, and yet it doesn't sound like the other music that was coming out in the eighties. And I think it, it transcended the style, um, of, of the, of the new wave style that you too. I mean, this sound, this album sounds a lot like earlier. You too. Um, the Joshua tree becomes much more kind of folky and, uh, and, and it leaves behind new wave a little bit. And so I think the 77's album remains in that kind of dominant 80s style. And like I said, I could hear a lot of these songs. They sound like things that would have been on the Fletch, the Fletch soundtrack. Right. And so, um, this is, uh, whereas, the U2 album is definitely of the 80s, but it doesn't sound like anything else of the time. And so it, it stood out more in, in some ways. But um, to the, I mean, to the great tragedy that it stunted the career uh, and definitely the marketability of, of this really wonderful band that I think could have had given the chance become uh an, an REM like band, um, given their kind of range and skill and, uh, and, and just sort of art artistry. Close your eyes and imagine an alternate universe where the 77s were the opening act on the Joshua tree tour, even for a leg of it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it would have worked perfectly. I think I, but both of those albums have this undercurrent of heartland rock. Uh, they, they both have these veiled religious references. I mean, the Joshua Tree is a better album. I love this album. The Joshua Tree is better. But, I mean, again, that's not a fair comparison. This is better than – it's at least on the level of the other U2 albums from the 80s. That one's just seminal. I, I just – it's it's uh, it's really too bad. It really is. Can I ask a dumb question? And, and... Go ahead. When you say, Michael, that it shares a lot of DNA in terms of sound and approach, did – Island Records have anything to do with the sound production of it, or are you just saying that the studio, that the that the that the that the the record label was cultivating a, a stable of artists that had a, a a cohesive sort of feel to it? No, I don't think I don't think Island had anything to do with that. And in fact, I, I mean, 
the 77th probably has a 20th of the budget of the Joshua Tree because U2 is already a huge band, you know? Right. Um, I, I just think they have similar influences and are going for a not entirely dissimilar sound. By the way, I looked it up. Here are the actual opening acts on the Joshua Tree tour. Uh, there's a bunch of them because, you know, they would do legs. Uh, Lone Justice, The Pretenders, Big Audio Dynamite, UB40, Little Steven, The Bodines, Mason Ruffner, World Party, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Spear of Destiny, The Waterboys, Hurrah, Los Lobos, Buckwheat Zydeco, The Pogues, The Alarm, The Silencers, and Lou Reed. Mm. Lou Reed's an interesting um, like uh, comparison to Michael Rowe, actually. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah. Um, and, and to and, and, follow and up, of course, Dave, uh, the 77's cover Lou Reed's song, Jesus. Mm, that's true. Um, to follow up David's question about the Island's involvement, I think Island basically just distributed. I think they made an arrangement with, because with the 77's light label, which was Exit Records. Yeah, which is run by the um, warehouse people. Yeah, and I think they actually okay. ended up signing with Island later on, like a decade later, um, directly. But there's a uh, maybe not quite a decade, but into the 90s, I think. Um, and the, but then I think so Island, I think, is just the distributor. Uh, so I don't know if they had the investment uh, relationship. As far as I know, they never did another record with Island um, in the in the 90s. They're signed to a Christian label called Brainstorm. Oh, I must have misread. I must have misread what I misremembered what I was reading. Yeah, I think I this is this is the only record on Island to the point where uh Fans call it the island record. Hmm. <laughs> okay. But, um, and going back to Michael's point about opening for you too, the article I read, actually, uh, it's kind of comical. Who they do open for is Jimmy Swaggart. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> who then proceeds to preach a sermon about how bad rock and roll is um, after... <laughs> After the 77s left the stage. I, I, I told you guys in the huh. in the pre-show planning that nobody we talk about in this series ever got any kind of break, but nobody got less of a break than Mike Rowe. Like, uh, it's just so sad. Yeah. That's almost comically sad there. That's, that's like Kafka funny, right? <laughs> Why would Jimmy Swagger even have a rock and roll opening act? He wrote that book. A wolf in sheep's Oh yeah, I remember seeing that book at used bookstores. They were char- they were part of their venues. I mean, they would hit they would play as many churches as they would clubs, right? And so, um, and so yeah, it just it's just the the network. <laughs> Christian rock's such a weird thing because obviously they never got the audience they were entitled to, but also I think being part of that scene made the people who do love them really, really love them. They have a really intense, albeit small, fan base. Like, really obsessive, yeah. uh, intense fans. And since I'm probably going to post this to the Facebook group for the 77s fans, I'm sure people are laughing at me right now. But if, if you join the 77s fan group, about half the posts are just people finding pictures of things that say 77 and posting them to the group. <laughs> It's true. I live in Ohio, or I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and Route 77 goes right through, and so yeah, there's all all kinds of opportunity. Well, I feel like 
The most famous 77 song, not just on this album, but in general, Mike Rowe has probably played this 50 times a year for three decades, is The Lust, The Flesh, The Eyes, and The Pride of Life. Nathan, do you like that song? You know, honestly, coming to this band for the first time, this wasn't my favorite track on the album. Uh, You know, I'd listened to it several times before I, you know, got the show notes. Uh, You know, I, I, I can see where people would enjoy it. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, as we said earlier, I mean, it's, it's probably the most direct Bible reference on the album. I mean, it is, it is, the chorus is a straightforward, you know, uh, recital of first John two sixteen uh, in the King James translation. Uh, it's an interesting narrative that, you know, turns sort of the public image itself of the rock star, uh, into an addiction narrative. So, I mean, I think that that's interesting. I also think that, you know, the play between uh, sort of the public image of the Christian rocker in particular uh, against this, you know, very deep spiritual sickness uh, certainly has something to it. Now, that said, I, I really didn't dig deep enough into the song to say any of that until I knew I was going to have to talk about it for the show because I found, uh, frankly, a lot of tracks on this album more interesting than this one. Uh, but, Michael, I mean, you are you are of the... Uh, the the chosen remnant of 77 fans. Why is this song, you know, sort of the uh, free bird of the micro catalog? That's a great song. I mean, just as a song, it's catchy. Uh, J. Edward Keys points out that the melody isn't timed the way you would expect it to, that the, the verses have different phrasings on the melody. So while it's a three-chord song, it's actually very complicated to sing and play. Uh, just because the the rhythm of the melody is so strange. So it keeps you interested. I, you know, I always liked it. Listening to it for this episode, I was really struck with how brutally honest that song is uh, about Mike Rowe, you know, that it's it's really a confession and it doesn't do it in any kind of uh, sanctimonious or flashy way. It's just really honest about who he is and what his problems are. And I think that's one of the things people like about him. So it makes sense that this would be, you know, their song. It's one of my favorite songs, like not just of the 77s, but period. Um, and yeah, I it, I love, I get, I, I'm weird in that I, I'll go, if I give a hankering for something like this. I'll go on YouTube and just try to find as many live versions of a song. And you're right, Michael, he's played this a bazillion times live. Right. And, and, and it's, 
and it's meaningful and, and he just sort of still like feels it. And, and it's just, and the people who are listening, you could tell they're, that's the song they're waiting to hear. And there's always this like kind of emotional response to it. And it's, uh, yeah, to me, it's like, it's one of my favorite songs. Like, uh, I just think it's masterful. And I think you're partially right. I, part, part of the reason is that you are right in that the, the complication of the rhythms is, is just constantly interesting. So it doesn't kind of age as fast as it might. It is better than any song containing the lyric, lay it on about how groovy I am has any right to be. (laughs) (laughs) With that, Michael, I will not disagree. (laughs) David, what'd you think of that song? I liked it. Um, I probably should have listened to it again. Um, you know, I, I, I listened, I listened through the, the whole album track after track and I went back and listened to, um, the ones that, you know, I, I, I was called on to ask space pay, pay more special attention to. Um, I didn't, I didn't to that one. Um, but I, I liked it. I, I liked the whole album. It, it, it felt um, weirdly, weirdly transgressive to me personally. Um, and this particular track kind of kind of fit into that too. Um, as a homeschool kid for whom all rock music, including the Christian type, was verboten, um, I had always associated rock and the rock that I wasn't supposed to be listening to, <laughs> but which I heard through friends and television, and it was just sort of around, um, with the kind of the kind of stories and the kinds of feelings that this that these lyrics play out. Um, so, I, I'm that's that's incredibly incredibly idiosyncratic to my own biography. But um, I, I liked it because it, it's it's sort of meshed in with my weird sentimental feelings for for that that time period for me. Sure. I, I also should note I don't dislike the song. It's just that you know again when I was listening to the album there were definitely other tracks to which I gravitated. Does that make sense? Well, and it it doesn't quite fit in in terms of the sound of the rest of the record so i get that like it's it's one that would stick out and not really it's not that it doesn't mesh because i mean it, it fits but it, it doesn't sound like the other songs well and it sounds like so. from the way you and danny were talking about it, it's very very rooted in mike rose biography which i wasn't really familiar with so it didn't resonate with me in the way that it does with you two yeah that may be true well speaking of weird songs that don't fit uh, in the circles I run in, Roe is noteworthy for his devotion to the blues and especially to blues rock, but there's really not a whole lot of blues on this album with the single exception of the very atypical eight-minute closing track, I Could Laugh. Well, I wonder what'll get me off So I pick and choose and take in a couple years you're right I'm left with a great big heartache so deep and wide that no matter what I 
my stuff inside it's empty just the way it came it's a crying shame but all the same I laugh oh I laugh yes I laugh it's not funny at all should I recall all the people I have hurt along the way uh, I have never known quite what to think of that song. David, maybe you can help me sort it out. What is it doing, and does it belong on this album? Oof. Uh, I don't know if I can answer the does it belong on this album. Um, if it belongs on this album, what it felt like to me was the concert is over, and everyone left... And the front man came back out on the stage by himself. Mm. Um, it it has that kind of feel to it to me. Um, it feel you you were talking about how the the lust the flesh and the pride of life feels personal. Um, this one is is even more of that with yeah. n- with none of the glitz. Um. I'm I'm bad at talking about the blues in general musically, so I'll let I'll let you pick up that. But in terms of the lyrics, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of regret in here. There's a lot of of kind of confession of personal personal flaws, as well as regret over not just regret over. Um, bad decisions right um the uh the every heart i broke into and left die bleeding on the roadside um not just that kind of regret but also regret for the failure to achieve um these it's it's the moment where the rocker looks into into the mirror without the context of the concert in which all of the appearance and the swagger makes sense, you know, and the mother, you know, my mom doesn't like my glorious crown. She, it brings her down. She won't take me serious. Thinks I join the circus and be a clown. And I assume by the way, that's not his mother, but his, uh, his girl. Well, yes. Mm. Um, you know, the holding the hand, but even so it's, it's that, you know, the one, the one who ought to understand me and accept me doesn't understand why I am this way and thinks it's ridiculous. Um, uh, lyrically, he has um, some really cool stuff that he does, particularly in this song, which is these weird shifts between the lines of, uh, let's see, looking for a good example, um... Uh, in a couple of years, you're right, I'm left with a great big heartache. That is a very typical micro construction, wouldn't you say, Danny? Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it's really clever, and yeah. Yeah. I, I really appreciated the cleverness in this song, because this song has much less repetition. It has many more words and many more opportunities for those moves to stand out. 
And it does kind of the same thing the lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life does. The the rhythm is not consistent. Mm-hmm. It's even it's even more jaggedy here. Um, I kept trying to think of what it was reminding me of, and the close the closest that I could that that I could get to to a song that did some of the the weird variation, right? It's a it's a it's a it's a strongly melodic song, but there doesn't feel like there's any particularly consistent melody. It keeps it keeps kind of going in different directions. Um, but it reminded me a little bit of just like heaven. And so, Mm. you know, it's, uh, it's a little, you know, Robert Smith blues. Um, I had no idea you were such a Cure fan, David. I, you know, I, I don't contain multitudes, but I contain that. (laughs) Um, yeah. So I, I really, I, I, I admired this, um, and the the final line, that that final stanza, with its judgment day, um, in which he manages to to slap together both the images of skeletons, skeletons in closets being revealed, but also the dry bones rising again, like like putting together that notion of disclosure and resurrection, um, in judgment. Uh, I thought it was really, really cool, um, and and as the as the end of a of a song that's about regret, it ends with uh, it ends with accountability, and it turns out that this, you know, what could have been moping is also kind of confession. Anybody else? Yeah, this also wasn't one of the tracks to which I gravitated, but I mean, you know, everything that, that David's been pointing out here, I mean, is is noteworthy uh, in the song. I mean, I'll I'll confess, I mean, I, I, I was getting a little bit t- tired of him showing how clever he is, and then when he got to them bones, them bones, them dry bones, I said, nope, I'm done. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not my favorite. I, I don't listen to it every time I listen to the album, and maybe that's why it's the last track. So if you're listening to it on vinyl, you can just just skip it. But I think there's some really remarkable, revelatory stuff here. And the one I keep going back to is his confession that he was involved in an abortion is what I take it to. Meanwhile, I dwell on the baby that I killed. Again, 1987 Christian rock album. That's... That's something, you know. Yeah, I love this. I love this song. Um, and honestly, this is the first introduction I had to this band because Rob, he's gonna kill me maybe for saying this. He had the last stanza and and ver- chorus on, posted on his door of his dorm. <laughs> I remember. I distinctly remember this, and he can call me if I'm misremembering. But uh, and I thought, and I asked, "What the heck is this?" Just the lyrics themselves themselves were so captivating to me. And then he, he I then introduced me to the album. Um, so this was sort of my entryway into the '77. So maybe that's why I have such a, uh, a, a an affection for it. But I love this song, and I do take the mama to be his mother. Um, maybe it's because I had an overprotective mother growing up, and. I understood the idea of wanting to hold my hand night and day. Uh, and, and I kind of saw that as a almost like the way I read this 
is his version of Mama Tried by Merle Haggard. Um, this is <laughs> his, uh, uh, like, I, br- I have the ambition and the, the desire to break away from the confines of my, in his case, Pentecostal home. And uh, I've experienced all this all the problems that came with my ambition and it, it gets apocalyptic at the end. And so instead of 21 in prison, I mean, he goes beyond that. He goes to the, to the great day. Right. And so yeah. um, I, I think that this is a, a fabulous song. And it's interesting. I, once again, I mean, I, I think that the deeply autobiographical character of it is what I missed just because I'm not familiar with micro as a, a public figure. Uh, I kind of, you know, heard a lot of this, language as as more sort of archetypal or mythological rather than biographical so i just experienced the 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 song very differently well whether it's a an archetypal rocker confessing or if it's micro in particular confessing you know i i i i i still find it gripping and you know maybe it's just an accident of this particular episode but because because Michael, I I knew that you would ask me about this one. I I listened to it to, to the point where, if I listen to this album again, it if I listen to a song on this album again, it will be this one. Mm. So it's it's kind of, you know, crawled its way up into my into my head at this point. Well, interesting. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it or can't get away from it. I don't know. I don't know. Can't which get one. over it. Can't get over it. <laughs> Well, as usual with these single-text episodes, I have dominated this conversation with the things that I think are interesting. So I want to end by going around the horn with each of you talking about some detail or moment I've left out of the conversation. Danny, why don't you start? I mean, I don't know that I have anything more than just my kind of personal attachment. And I mean, I've always, like I said, loved the album and and kind of I see a a spiritual kinsman in Mike Rowe. And when I think about my own show and the schizophrenic nature of the topics, I mean, I must be just as baffling to people as Mike Rowe was <laughs> to his, uh, to his uh, uh, Christian and secular audiences. And, uh, and so I've always, I feel a little less lonely listening to this album, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, and so I think it's something for those of us who are definitely of Christianity, of cultural Christianity and who have chosen to stay within it always knowing that you're never really a part of it. Uh, and I think that he's, he fills that gap and I explains for me why I seek out these kind of things in my own life today. And I'm actually lucky enough. I live right near Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and there's a really strange, uh, underground, like Christian hardcore slam poet movement that I just happened upon, uh, in Emmanuel when I was there with Nathan and, uh, and there's a, a, what they call the flood city fest coming up here in May with a lot of these bands, they'll get up there who are Christians and do very strange, uh, dangerous, hardcore music with swear words and confessing love for Jesus in the same poem. And, and, and so I feel like there's a really, um, there's a, a, a subculture that, perpetuates this tradition and it makes me very happy and i'm way too old to be going to flood city fest but i will totally be there <laughs> um feeling good for all the kids who found a home nathan uh i want to talk about the song that i was sure was going to be in the show notes but wasn't and that's bottom line because it has uh for my money the most uh blaze pascal 
verse on this album, uh, and I'll quote it here. You take one look at me and you want to walk because there's no good in me and I shouldn't talk, but I've got everything or nothing at all. Uh, and like I said, I mean, I, I think that uh, that's something that you don't have to read as a theological claim, but when you do, uh, it has that glorious, you know, Blaise Pascal, Soren Kierkegaard feel uh, that I, I, I was just sure Michael was going to ask me about. So since he didn't, I'm making it my moment. David, what do you got? You know, the Pascal moment on this record is from Don't Say Goodbye. I beg your pardon, but who promised you a garden east of Eden? You're arrogant to presuppose there's bliss somewhere over the abyss. There you go. That sounds like Pascal to me. David? Uh, I mentioned it earlier. I can't get over it. Um, and then Danny threw it back at me again. Um, <laughs> but th- this this is this is uh, another one that I enjoyed for the for the sake of the lyrics, but also because um, it's it's a good song for meditating on the cost of forgiveness. Um, not a subject that comes up very much in music. No, not necessarily. And we and we all we all are, you know, everybody's fans achieve grace. Everybody loves being forgiven. Um and, but the uh what forgiveness costs is is not always something that we necessarily want to meditate on as much. Um I I appreciated the way this lyric kind of gnaws on the the the, the lyrics of the song gnaw on that idea. I think it's useful. Feels Linton. Well, D- Danny, you and I both said that '88 is a good place to go next. Do you have another album recommendation for this band? Um, I like the early ones. I mean, I've always been a big fan of of new wave music. Um, sort of my first independent discovery was punk and new wave, and so um, I, I like Ping Pong Over the Abyss. Um, and and so yeah, I would go back and, and look at some of the early ones. I would say also that Mike Rowe has a solo double disc concert uh, called It's For You that, first of all, it goes through a bunch of songs from the various stages of his career. So it's it's a kind of a good place to start with them. And also, he's really, really funny in the between song patter. And, and I mean, part of the pleasure of going, especially to a Mike Rowe solo show is hearing him make cracks about himself and everybody else. Uh, so I, I really like that album a lot. Uh, it's for you. And that's, that's credited to Michael Rowe, but yeah. Um, you know, I, I was going to say there's not a bad place to start, but I do think there are some, so yeah, maybe, maybe do one of the live albums. I think ping pong over the abyss is two eighties for me. Uh, it is, it is very, very new wave. Yeah. But Hey, if that's your taste for me, that's a good thing. Yeah. uh, Yeah. But like I said, I'm for nobody. So yes, and nobody's for me. So, um. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Danny. Hey, I really flattered to be asked, and I always love talking to you guys. And so, and this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So, my pleasure. Uh, Nathan, what are we talking about next week? Well, I have been uh, rolling around some some philosophical questions and some philosophical problems about loyalty. Uh, in my own head, and my own head isn't big enough to contain them, so I'm going to borrow your heads, and we're going to talk about loyalty next week. (laughs) 
Sounds good. Until then, you can get in touch with us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or our website, which is christianhumanist.org. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Filippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. Uh, For Nathan Gilmore, for David Grubbs, for Danny Anderson, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.